Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And this week, Dominique, when we were exchanging emails about what, what we want to talk about, you basically said you want to talk about what comes before. You want to talk about the antecedent. That's right. So why don't you jump in and get us get us going? Sure. Well, you know, we've been talking about cues now for a few weeks, and we're going to have, again, the webinar with uh, Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, where we're going to talk about cues in context. And we alluded to this when we were doing Sarah, uh, the podcast with Sarah Owen, that <clears throat> we spend a lot of time talking about behavior, and we spend a lot of time talking about consequences and reinforcers. But in that behavior unit, the ABC unit, there's the antecedent, the behavior, and the consequence. And I think it's important to spend some time talking about the antecedent. And certainly cues are a big part of the antecedents, but that's not all there is uh, in the antecedent. So I want to see if we can clarify for people, what exactly does that mean? The A in the ABC unit, what's part of the antecedent? How far do we have to think back? Are there distance, uh, distant antecedents? And what is it exactly? What I've been reading and looking at, you know, antecedent simply defined is everything that happens before the behavior. And you're right in terms of distance, everything that happened before the behavior, are we going back to the big bang theory? I don't think so. Right. So are we talking about that which occurs immediately before, how far in front of a behavior and then our behavior are we thinking of behavior as a unit, like a particle? I always think of this in terms of the quantum mechanics. Is it a particle or is it a wave? Is it a stream? Because we often, we, we talk about a behavior as though it's this discrete thing that you can chop off and separate from the whole stream of life. So it's an interesting question of what, what are we talking about when we talk about antecedents and what aspect of it. So the whole set up, the, set up your animal for success, train where you can, not where you can't, managing your environment with the horses, it's start with protective contact, et cetera, et cetera. So what is it as you were, as this subject was really beginning to pull pull you in and intrigue you. How are you thinking of antecedents? What was drawing you in? Well, first of all, I think when we start talking about antecedents, there are two, for me, big situations that are completely different. There's the situation where you're dealing with unwanted behavior um, and you're trying to put together a modification plan And then there's the other situation where you're trying to build 
I don't know, something you thought of that you want to use in performance or that, you know, you're just building from scratch. Okay. And so if, if we take the situation first of the unwanted behavior, and we've talked a lot about the mindset that we feel is optimal, which is not trying to suppress behavior, but rather think about what you want the animal to do. Right. But for, for this time, I'd like to address the idea of the unwanted behavior before maybe we even start to think about what we want the animal to do. Because we talked about uh, Susan Friedman's uh, hierarchy uh, last year in the podcast. Right. And... Uh, Perhaps we can refer people to which episode it was later on. But um, so the first thing she um, suggests that we should look at when we have unwanted behavior is that the health factors, right. you know, the health and something. medical. Yeah, the, the, the health and medical. But the second step is changing the antecedent or looking at the antecedent. So if we took a particular situation very common one a horse that bites right you're grooming the horse and the horse is is showing what we would label as grumpy behavior the ears are back there's a lot of teeth grinding or the the, there's that tension in the face there's he might the horse might even be reaching around and biting at you, there's some tail swishing going on, just a general unhappiness in the behavior that is being expressed. So the first thing in that hierarchy is we would want to look at the health and welfare, the medical. And so the first thing that might jump out at us would be, well, does this horse have ulcers? So sitting, so we would want to enlist the help of our, of our vet to say, is there some physical reason? Is there is this horse hurting somewhere that is causing this behavior? Because we could train till we're blue in the face, but if there's a medical situation, it's not going to resolve. If that horse is grumping at us because when we brush around his belly, it's really uncomfortable for him because he's he's full of ulcers, teaching him to keep his nose on a target and to, uh, you know, all of these other, this is what I would like my horse to do, is not going to keep him from saying, you know, human, I'm trying to tell you that I'm miserably uncomfortable. Right. Yeah, we would need to make sure of that. But then the second step, and what's so interesting I find about looking at the antecedents is that, and what, what Dr. Friedman says is that, very often clients are very relieved to see because they when there's an unwanted behavior the automatic thing is to think oh i have to train something else but then she says that perhaps just with the antecedent changes you can address this and you don't and for a lot of people it's a big relief because it's a very humane way of dealing with unwanted behavior because right. it is not intrusive and it's pretty easy to do, you know, in many situations. So what's part of antecedents? So questions we can ask ourselves 
to help us describe what the antecedent, what the situation, the context, the setting is. So we can ask ourselves, where is this happening? Who's there? What else is going on? What time of the day is, is it? Anything that is in the environment is worth looking at. Right. And most of the time, what we want to focus on is the immediate environment, but that it's, there's also, you know, most of our horses, they come with a history. And so the distance, distant antecedents, they're, they're not, they're not as easily, we can't change them because they're far behind, right. perhaps. But they are part of, you know, if a, an animal has been abandoned for many years in, you know, situation where a hand approaching uh, was not good news, well, it's part of the antecedent of this animal. Right. So let's stay with our, our grumpy horse. So we've had the vet out. The vet has assured us that, and maybe we've done the, maybe the horse did have ulcers and we've gone through a a treatment plan with that, but we still are seeing that we have a lot of grumpy behavior. So you said, what's in the immediate environment? Who is there? What is the time of day, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe what we're seeing is that the place where you groom is right next to stall and that there's a lot of resource guarding and the horse that's in the stall is showing some threatening behavior and that this is making the horse that you're grooming uncomfortable and that all you need to do to resolve this problem would be to move the horse to a different part of the barn somewhere else right right easy solution that's a key thing because if the horse is grumpy he only does this grumpy face when this other horse is there and not when, you know, the stall is empty next to him. Then you know this is part of the antecedent of the behavior. Yes. Because it's repeatedly, it is always there when the behavior happens. Yes. That's how you know it's part of that ABC unit. Because, of course, there are lots of things in the environment that will not be relevant to the animal but when you have something like this and it's repeatedly in the picture when the behavior happens then and like you said it's such an easy thing to do yes you don't have to come up with this big plan of training except in a boarding barn it may not be all that easy to do that's true and that's where you may have to go through another kind of process yeah but if you can it's something that you can certainly grab hold of and say well let me at least see if this is what's happening here if i teach my horse to stand on a mat and i groom him out in the arena where he's at liberty and he has a the option of walking away and there aren't horses close by do i get the same grumpy behavior or is he much more relaxed? Of course, that means I've changed a lot of variables since I'm now grooming him on a mat at liberty instead of perhaps on a tie or even cross ties in a barn aisle. But can I move this horse away from the pressure of being in a 
barn aisle with horses on either side. And maybe because of the hour that I'm coming to the barn, the horses, they haven't been hayed yet and the horses are in stalls and they're all hungry. I'm thinking about some of the boarding situations where horses are not out on pasture turnout, but they're kept stabled. There are a lot of pressures that are in that environment for a horse that's in the cross ties. So what can I change? And does that change my horse's behavior? So that would be definitely something to look at. Yep. And in a way, that's something that is not really encouraged a lot in traditional training because people will say, well, you know, you have to show him. He has to learn to not do that in any situation. So in a way, it's kind of a new way of looking at things. I remember when we did this clinic where you had a horse that was worried about the antecedents. I was just going to mention that. Yeah, so we had this runway and it was too close to the wall or I don't remember what it was exactly. So we had this whole setup and we had like I don't know, 25, 20 people in the clinic. And the horse, the horse was not used to having all those people. Right. I was going to ask you if you remembered this situation. I do. I think it's the perfect example. We were thinking of the same example. (laughs) And and I think he just retired, I think. So he was not a horse that I knew particularly well or had a relationship with. And we had the arena set up so that the people were on that there were the people were fairly close to the the runway that we had and the runway was simply we're working on teaching him to go to step on a mat so we had two lines of cones set up so that it was like a v that funneled the horse towards the mat and he was really anxious yeah so i took him out and we rearranged everything we moved the people, we moved the runway so that he had more space and it didn't feel as hemmed in and brought him back out and he was so much, he could, he, he could handle the situation. Yep. And I remember you commenting on just how important it was to see that you don't have to stay with a situation that isn't working. No. You can change it. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people in the clinic, it was like this revolutionary thing because that's not what their trainer would usually say is he has to work through this pro- this thing. And yeah. no, you know what? He doesn't have to. That's what an antecedent strategy is, is that you change the setup to make it easier and gradually, certainly there's no problem into teaching this horse to work closer and closer and closer to, but you make it easier, not harder. Right. So I I always think of it like testing the waters. I mean, you don't really know, especially when you're just starting with a, a horse. And one of the things that we do at clinics is Day one is always that data collecting day where we say, let's, let's just find out what the starting point is. And I think of it like testing the waters. So if I'm thinking about jumping into a swimming pool, do I jump in at the deep end? Do I put my toe in the water and see how cold it is or how hot it is? I'm going to test the waters before I jump in. So with the horses, we tested the water. We said, well, let's take him into the arena, into this setup, which 
is, is a perfectly normal, reasonable setup to be using. But for this horse, it was too much. But just because you jumped into the pool doesn't mean you have to stay there. So if I jump into the water and I say, oh, this is too cold or it's too hot or it's too, too something, I can get out. And we certainly want that for the horses as well. If I test the water and discover that this is not the right lesson or the right environment, the right something for this horse, it's not the right starting point. Mm-hmm. I don't have to stay there slogging away at it, trying to make something work when I can just make an adjustment in the environment. Yeah, and it's a valid, it's a good strategy. And it's... Yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah, which, again, is, is not always as... A lot of people have learned the opposite. But it's, it's, it's beneficial to the animal. Right, well, it's what, we, it's what we see modeled. Yeah. Now, you don't always have the luxury. I mean, certainly... At clinics, you'll have horses that are just not good travelers. What the horse wishes is that he could just click his heels together three times and he'd be back home in Kansas, as it were. Mm-hmm. You know, the Wizard of Oz thing of, can I just click my heels together and, and disappear from this situation? And sometimes the answer is, you know, we can't get you into an, an environment where you're going to feel at ease because it's not available to us. You know, I've put you on a horse trailer and moved to a new boarding barn, and we can't go back to the old boarding barn because I've changed jobs, changed cities, and moved. And so you, my beloved darling horse, have to move with me. And so everything that was familiar to you is is no longer there. Mm -hmm. You're in a new environment. This is where you're going to be. I can't, we can't click our heels together and get you back into that which was familiar to you. This is the new environment. And so we're going to have to figure out, find ways to cope. And depending upon how resilient or not your horse is, it can be fairly easy and straightforward, or it can be months and months and months of... Adaptation. Of adaptation, yeah. So it's sometimes you can make simple adjustments in the environment and job done, problem solved. All you had to do was change to a different part of the barn aisle where you were grooming and now your horse can relax. And other times it's just a much more complex situation. You can change the sit. You can change the setting, like we explained. You know, you can go somewhere else or make it easier. You know, if your horse is having a hard time going through uh, narrow passages, you can make them wider, so it's less. Yes. There's less effort to go through, and then and slowly you can then teach the horse to be comfortable in a narrower and narrower and right. narrower but you don't have to push right you did that at the cavalier barn did. because there were different doorways that that you could go in and out and so the doorways were not all equal some of the doorways were human-sized doorways they were doors some of them were big garage door doorways so you could choose if a horse was struggling with a particular i don't do this kind of passageway this kind of doorway you could choose well we'll go out of the barn a different way and we'll work on what you need exactly to be comfortable 
with being able to go in and out through this other type of doorway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know what I'm, um, the more I, I explore antecedents, the more I realize how many little details are part of antecedents. Certainly something when you start playing with teaching cues that you realize that there's a situation where you think, come on, it's the same thing. We're in the same arena, but if the angle is different, it's different for the animal. If certainly we all know how different it is to work near the end door, you know, that big door at the end, right. we all know how much easier right. it's to work in front of the arena. So for the animal, it's different. It's not the same, you know, it's not the same behavior doing it there or doing it here. And this is fascinating. There are two elements there. So one is that whole emotional, I feel more secure down at the other end of the barn where the stalls are yeah. versus down at the far end where the goblins are. Uh, and I'm further away from all the other horses. So there's, there's that part of it. Yeah. And then... There's what rule set are we following? So you could be thinking that what you want is for the horse to put his ears forward and you're clicking him when he puts his ears forward and he's thinking that you want him to look out the back door. Yeah. So because every time he, it just happened yeah. that... You were stand, You had him on a mat. The mat was facing, looking out the back, and he was putting his ears forward because there was activity out the back door. So he was getting clicked and reinforced a lot for looking out into the the back forty. And so that's what his rule set says. Oh, she wants me to look outside. So now you come back the following day and you set your mat down, but you've got him facing. A, a different direction now he's facing the sidewall of the arena and his ears aren't he's not responding the way he was the other day except that he keeps wanting to turn and look out the back door because he's thinking you want him to look out the back door so we've got two different two different scenarios there one is an emotional component of where does my horse feel comfortable it's train where you can not where you can't he may not be ready yet to train for to, so far away from the security of the of the barn. And the other is, you thought you were teaching A and he was learning Z. I think that happens a lot. I think that happens yes. all the time. You know, yes. anytime you're having difficulty putting something on cue, I think it's because of something like you just described where the what's the relevant information is not clear. What you think is relevant is not what the animal thinks it's is relevant. And sometimes what they think is relevant, there are so many elements in the picture that they are kind of including in the the antecedent, the cue, and it's so hard to make the one consistent, relevant thing uh, clear 
for both sides. And this is when you're, you're trying to isolate, when you're teaching the cue, you're trying to isolate the one thing that is relevant. It's like, you don't do the behavior for anything else, but this thing. And that's hard. Yeah. And that's why I like teaching in pairs, because when you teach behaviors in pairs, in a sense, you have a way of testing. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of the table games that we play. So again, at clinics, we'll play, you know, whether we call it the table game Janabacab after the, the table games that Kay Lawrence developed and where she really was the one who who got us started thinking about playing table games where you take you take objects in case people aren't familiar with it you take objects and objects what does that mean you could raid your 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 kitchen junk drawer everybody's kitchen has it usually has a junk drawer and you look around for just stuff could be thinking of some of the junk drawers at clinics that we've raided where people have uh, corks or paper clips and pens and just miscellaneous clutter or you can make a formal table game kit and where you've got it set up so that you've got objects that really lend themselves well to the learning game and another version of the table game was the portal the portable operant research and teaching lab that Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz developed as an offshoot of Kay's table games. And there they're using it for, for research purposes. And I will often at clinics, particularly if we have somebody who's new to the whole clicker training process, I'll introduce them to some of the major concepts of clicker training by playing the table game. And where I have them targeting and then getting that on cue and then getting a, a second behavior and you start really seeing is the person is the rule that the person is following the same rule as the one that you think you're teaching and the way you find out is by testing the, the system enough to see if they continue to give you the right answer it's quite likely that the rule that they're following is the rule that you're using as well right and when I talk about rule, it could be something as simple as this blue piece of paper that I'm holding up is the cue for touching that blue piece of paper that's on the table. And this green piece of paper that I'm holding up is the cue for touching that green piece of paper. But until you've done enough tests, you don't know. The person might be thinking, well, blue, I touch the first object you put out. And when you hold up green, I touch the second object you put out. And that's not going to give you the same consistent answer. Because if I now put the blue object out second, and I hold up the blue piece of paper, you're going to touch the green object. I hope people are following this. Because in your rule, the blue piece of paper says, touch the first thing she put out. Right. And so now I'm going to be looking at that going, why is my person, this is, why is this person not getting that when I hold up a blue piece of paper, she should touch the blue piece of paper on the table? How obvious can it be? And the answer is, it's always obvious to the one who knows the answer. Mm. Right? 
And yep. but my my learner doesn't know. My learner is sure she knows the answer. Well, she's learned something else. <laughs> she's learned something else because yeah. somehow in the early phase I fell yeah. into without recognizing it because that's without under without noticing it myself. I didn't notice the pattern that she was picking up on. Exactly. Even though. I didn't realize that I was in a pattern, and maybe I wasn't even in a pattern, but somehow that learner... But we always are. Yeah. It, as soon as we start, we are in an antecedent right. situation, and so we have to be careful about it, because the animal is photographing all this information. Yeah. And doesn't that get to one of the other points you were making, which is the learner's history? So mm-hmm. why is the person picking up on it's the sequence instead of it's the color match? Something in that learner's history led them yeah. more to look for the sequence than look for the color match. Yeah. I'm going to make a little tangent here because what may happen is that you accidentally reinforce something that was not what you should have. Yes. And Mary Hunter just published something on the power of one reinforcer. It freaked me out. Yes. When I read this. Yes. It's so good. Yep. But at the same time, it's like, oh, I'm not doing that again. There's the music. So you know what that means. You're going to have to wait until next week to learn what Mary Hunter discovered about desperation clicks and the effect that one reinforcer can have on your training. It really was an astounding result. In the meantime, our webinar with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz is just around the corner. It's on Sunday, June 2nd at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. The topic is going to be cues in context, so it should be very relevant to our current discussion. To register for the webinar, go to equosity.com. We'll be recording the webinar, so if you can't attend the live event, you can always listen to it afterwards. So have fun with your horses, and we'll have the second half of this conversation next week.